Now, I had an uh, interesting moment this past week. Uh, I had this guy come over to my house, and he was a landscape professional. And the reason why, uh, now, I don't know if you have a green thumb. Uh, I do not. And uh, we attempt to plant various and sundry things in my yard. Uh, I try to do my best to keep my yard up, although it doesn't look fantastic. Uh, I kind of depend on God's sovereignty and predestination with plants. Um, uh, if, if they're going to die, I just decide uh, it's just meant to be. That's just the way that God would have it. Uh, so there's, uh, we, we got this guy in our yard uh, to tell us about, uh, you know, what can we put, what kind of plants can we put, where can we put them, all sorts of stuff. And we have, you know, some plants that are in our yards that we, are, we have planted in the last year and a half or so. And, uh, and, and some of them, okay, most of them, are not doing uh, so well. And so my plan is, is obviously it's hot, and, and the logic that goes into my brain is if it's hot and they're not doing so well, it means that they, they are not getting enough water. So my plan is, is that I try to at least get out there and soak them as much as possible, give them as much water as they possibly need, and if they still look like they're dying, continue to give them more and more water and continue to give them more and more water. Now, here's something interesting. Apparently, I was uh, uh, overcompensating for this little dryness problem, and I was overcorrecting because here's what happened. He looked at our plants and he kind of dug around the roots a little bit. And he said this. He said, you are overwatering your plant. This disturbed me greatly. And all I wanted to do was yell at my plants and say, did you, so you're saying you're getting too much of what you should need. And I was overcorrecting the problem. And I just like literally wanted to drop kick a shrub, but at that point, but I, I was so frustrated because isn't that what I'm supposed to do? I shouldn't, I shouldn't plant just soak up all the water. And I was overcorrecting. I was taking something that was an extreme of dryness and saying, I'm going to swing all the way over here and give it, I guess, too much water. And I overcorrected and there wasn't enough balance. And I think there's a lot of things in our culture that are like that, that sometimes the pendulum swings back and forth between one extreme to the other. And sometimes we, we don't find the balance, but we overcorrect. I mean, some, some examples and just in fashion, think about this for a second. I mean, if, if you grew up in, uh, in high school or something in the nineties, uh, the, the, the cool look was the grunge look, right? So you, your jeans were incredibly baggy. They had holes in them. Uh, guys wore around these pants that, I mean, were, were falling off of their body at any given time dirty, nasty type of jeans. Now, now if you go to like the cool scene, if you go to like the clubs and stuff, guys are wearing jeans that are so tight that I don't, like they were sewed onto their body. I'm a little worried about their procreation ability. And so, um, but you, you see this massive swing in different things in our culture. Uh, when I was in high school, you my dad wore plaid shirts. You would never catch, catch me dead in a plaid shirt. You know, so, but now the, the pendulum has swung a little bit. So think about sunglasses. In the 60s and 70s, how big were sunglasses? They were huge, like they were monstrous. And then you get into the, you know, 80s and 90s, and it was their goal to get them as small as possible, uh, think of sunglasses. And now it's really cool to have big sunglasses. So you have this massive cultural pendulum swing between back and forth. When cell phones started, you have this massive like Zach Morris phone that you would carry, that you would carry around. I mean, it would be on your belt and you carry around. And then, and then when cell phones kind of got kicking a little bit longer, it was their goal to find the smallest possible cell phone. Do you remember this? I mean, it was like, let's see how small we can get a cell phone. Now it's like, 
I want to carry a small television in my pocket so that I can watch movies when I want to in my car or something like that. I mean, vitamins, this kills me. Every time we go to the pediatrician, there's some kind of different vitamin that either like two weeks ago would have killed your baby and now it's healthy. Um, and, but you're supposed to take vitamin D. No, vitamin D, vitamin D now gives you cancer and so does E. So don't take that and take a lot of vitamin C. And you just never know. And then so it's just like, let's just eat fish secretions. Uh, and uh, that's what you should be eating. It, it drives me crazy. The church does this a lot. There's huge pendulum swings in the church. You know, at some time in the 20s, uh, you know, things got a little bit more free. And people would go out to clubs and dance a lot, which led to fornication. And so the church decided, like, because these people who are in clubs and dancing were doing things they shouldn't, we're going to prohibit, we're going to swing the pendulum all the way back around and say, you cannot dance. Dancing is bad because it leads to the bad stuff in the bedroom, right? So that's, that's not a good idea. The same thing with drinking. The same thing with alcohol. You know, you don't, you don't want to be drunk. Obviously, the Bible says that you shouldn't be drunk. So what does the church do? It says, absolutely not. We are going to say you cannot drink at all. And there's the pendulum swings back and back and forth. The funny thing about that is the church never says that about food. Uh, and so you, you have fat preachers up there. Uh, telling people not to drink. And I'm just like, stop drinking gravy and you'd be okay. Um, so there's a little bit of a balancing act for Christians. There's a little bit of, a, how, how do we, do we go from one extreme to the other? Where do we find a balance? And we've been walking over the last couple of weeks through the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching. You saw the video, our Sojourn series about walking with Jesus. And we, we kind of walk through the valley a little bit. Some of the temptations and problems, hatred, murder, these kind of things. And then we dealt with, uh, and now we're dealing with kind of the path. What does it mean to walk as a Christian? I can't wait till we get to the mountain uh, where we get to talk about heaven and all sorts of really cool stuff that I'm really excited about. But uh, Jesus, in this sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount, he is calling his followers to walk in holiness, to walk towards righteousness, to be pure in their life, that that Christianity transforms who you are. It changes everything about you. It changes your heart. It changes the way you think. It changes what you do in your actions. It changes absolutely everything. So you would think that that your pendulum would go from complete sin, absolute depravity, and as soon as Christ transforms your life, the pendulum, I wish I had a pendulum, but the, the pendulum swings all the way back to the other side. But then Jesus gets on to the religious people and says, don't do what they do either. Don't do the religious stuff. And so Jesus, in uh, Matthew chapter 7, which we're going to study today, so if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 7, He's going to give us some texts that are going to give us a little bit of a balancing act. How, how do we not overcorrect and become overly religious, but not at the same time walk back to our sin, which is over here? How do we find right where the middle? How do we find equilibrium where we are? Because here's what happens. When we become a believer and we change our lives, when the pendulum swings back the other way, sometimes we get frustrated with people. We get frustrated with people that don't think the same way we do, that don't understand the gospel like we do. We get frustrated that they get to do anything that they want, and we are now constrained by righteousness and holiness, and we, we, we're not really sure why they don't get it, why they don't get the enlightenment. And then worse still, sometimes we don't get why, now that we're a Christian and now that we're walking with God, why doesn't God work everything out 
like he is supposed to for me? Why isn't my life perfect? I thought, you know, my life wasn't perfect over here. I went, I came to that realization that it wasn't perfect. And so I decided to become a Christian, which the pendulum should swing all the way over here, where everything is peaceful, restful, good, and wonderful, where everything is rainbows and butterflies. Why isn't that happening? Where is God in all of that? How do we find the balance in our Christian walk? So Matthew chapter 7, I'm actually going to give you four. We're going to uh, run through 12 verses of Scripture. There's four areas of balance that Jesus gives us in the next 12 verses. And a lot of these verses are going to be pretty familiar to you. But before we get into that, let me pray, and we'll jump right into the text. Jesus, we're grateful uh, that you uh, have given us teaching that is truthful, that it is perfect in every way. I realize that this Word of God is absolutely perfect. It has no error And so I pray that we would align our life with what the truth of your word says, that we wouldn't try to change it or malign it, but that we would try to adapt ourselves, transform our lives into what you would have us in the truth of this scripture. I'm thankful uh, that you give us a chance to talk about your word this morning uh, freely. In your name we pray. Amen. So four areas of balance, four areas of balance, if you're taking notes, for the Christian life. Now here we go. The first one is balance in judgment. Balance in judgment. And all of you are going to recognize this first verse. Chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck or sawdust out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, this is probably the most memorized verse of Scripture in our entire culture. Here's why. Is because for whatever reason, our culture has decided, hey, we're going to use this verse to defend our sinful lifestyle and say it is going to be the trump card to anybody who says that we should live differently or live towards righteousness. And so what, say something happens where, uh, con- take consumerism for an instance. Say you're you know, somewhat wealthy and you decide to buy something that's kind of gaudy and lavish, all right? And you, you go out there and buy it and you bring it home and somebody says really? I mean, isn't that kind of a little over, over? And what do you say? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. You know, don't be, don't judge because you're going to be judged, right? In marriage, we do this sometimes, right? When we make a decision, it might not be a good one. And your wife or your, or your husband comes to you and says, you know, I don't think that was the right decision. Don't judge me. Don't judge because you're the one that's going to be judged. And probably the, the biggest cultural issue that we have uh, as far as like sexual sin is, is homosexuality in our culture. You know, uh, that's, a, that's a big trump card for the homosexual culture. It is, don't judge me. Don't judge. You're not supposed to do that. According to the Bible, this is Jesus' own words. He says, do not judge me. And the church has a huge problem with this. Because the church doesn't know where the pendulum is supposed to swing. Because here's what happens. is on the news, you'll see this. You have protests and people that are filled with hatred and say that God hates you because of what you're doing. You'll even have signs. 
that say, God hates you. God hates the gays. God hates you. People in Vegas, me and Adrian uh, went on a family vacation. I know this sounds weird, to, to Vegas. And uh, uh, yeah, there was not a whole lot to do for a pastor in Vegas. Okay, so um, we went there, and there was this dude in the middle of the street with this big sign, had the Ten Commandments all over it, and he was telling everyone that they're going to go to hell because of what they're doing in the middle of the street. So that's one, that's one way that church can, can speak into this whole thing. And then what happens is the church says, okay, I'll read that verse, and we believe the culture, and we swing all the way back around the other way, and we say, hmm, maybe this, there's something to what Jesus is saying. Maybe we shouldn't judge. And so we never stand in discernment and truth. We never find any type of balance whatsoever. I'm going to trip over that three or four times today. So it's the church really struggles with the balance of this. Should we be over here on the picket line, or should we be over here in mediocrity? How do we find complete balance? So here it is. At face value, when you read this verse, if you, if you just take this verse, then you will come to the conclusion that we should be right over here, that we shouldn't judge anyone. However, we always take the whole counsel of Scripture. This is a whole book, right? It's not just one verse about judgment. There's a lot of stuff about judgment. Specifically, I think I might have it on the, on the board. John 7, 24. This is Jesus speaking again in John 7, 24. He says this, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now that's interesting. The same man who said, do not judge lest you be judged, says, make sure you judge with right judgment. Now all over the New Testament with the Apostle Paul, he continuously tells the church, make sure that you discern the truth. Beware of false teachers who are going to come in and say the wrong things. He's saying, basically, uh, especially in 1 John, John says this in, uh, in, four, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe everything, but test. Test the Spirit uh, so, uh, to see whether they are from God. Test the Spirit, basically meaning make sure that you are discerning truth from error. Basically, judging. Make sure you judge what is going on. So, okay, hang on. So, do not judge is over here, but then he's saying, okay, make sure you judge rightly. Are we over here? How do we stay in balance? And here's a couple things. Um, Jesus forbids, here it is in this scripture, Jesus is going to forbid us to place final judgment onto people. Meaning, it is not our place to tell someone you are going to go to hell because of what you're doing. That's not in our place to do. We shouldn't do that. Because that is God's role he places final judgment simply because we don't know. There's no way that we can see into people's hearts. God can, but we cannot. Now, we can discern from actions and fruit where the direction might go, and we can, we can make some wise discernment about how things are going to go. And that's, that is Christian judgment. And here's how this is. Now, if you were driving on a mountain path, let's say you were driving with your family up a mountain on a small mountain road, and all of a sudden you saw a sign that says, danger, road ends ahead. And you say, eh, let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. You keep driving, there's another sign that says, cliff ahead, road ends, stop. Eh, maybe it's just a suggestion. And you just keep on going. And there's sign after sign after sign. It's critical, caution, do not go any further, stop, road ends certain death of head every 25 feet there's another sign that says stop 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 you're going to go over the cliff 
You're going to die. Do we ignore those signs? That's a good question. So what is our role as a Christian? Is our role the person who says you're going to go to hell? No, our role is to be signs of truth in our culture. Discerning signs of truth that say, warning, warning, caution, the way that you are going is leading to certain death. You're going in the wrong direction. It's not my job to, to, to discern whether you're going to go to heaven or hell. That's God's job. However, because of God's word, and I can align God's word with your life and say, it's going in the wrong direction. So that's judgment. That's what Jesus means by simple judgment. Now we can do these things. If we're going to be giant warning signs of truth to our culture, there's two things that we need to remember. Two checks. Number one, we've got to check our heart. We've got to check our heart. Are we, being, are we judging in a Christian manner out of love? Are we loving people and, saying, and being discerning and saying, hey, this action isn't matching up? Or are we being judgmental? There's a big difference between Christian judging and being judgmental. Judgmental is all about the heart and how we see people. Do we love them and care for them? Or are we just warning them out of spite? And saying, ha, I'm bigger than you, I'm better than you. And you shouldn't do that, moron. Right? Or are we saying, I desperately want you to change your life. I'm measuring, I'm measuring the Bible against your life and kind of seeing that it's going in the wrong direction. I love you. I care for you. I want you to go in the right direction. This is what the scripture says. I want to walk with you, talk with you about being a disciple of Christ. How can we do that together? There's a big difference between being judgmental and judging Christian character in that way. Second thing, check your action. Check your action. I love this. Jesus gives an illustration. In verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, now this is great hyperbole. This is a fantastic hyperbole. Jesus, if you, you, know, you ever think that Jesus is not very funny, this is funny. I mean, this is a joke. Jesus is making a huge joke. And so what I got here, got my log. So this is what, this is what Jesus is saying, Right? Yo, man, dude, you got to spend more time with your wife. That's what you got to do, right? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I work most of the time. I work about 80 hours a week, but my wife understands. It's cool. It's cool. But you, dude, you got you to spend more time with your wife. That's what you got to do, right? You know, I can't stand my boss. My boss is such a freaking moron. He gets angry at me all the time. Why does my boss get angry at me all the time? I hate that guy. Right? My kids are so annoying. Anyway, hang on, hang on. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. My kids just never listen to me. I don't know why. They're uh, they just never. So hang on. Yeah, dude, I'll get back with you in just a second. I gotta work that. Yep. Okay, cool. I don't know why my kids don't like me. I don't. I don't know why they don't pay attention to me. I don't get it. They're kind of annoying, right? You see? You see? Got like dust on my forehead from this, but. Jesus is making a drastic, drastic illustration to say, you need to remove the log out of your eye to even be able to be accountable, to be able to watch your actions. The biggest and greatest biblical illustration of this is David and Bathsheba. David takes, he has, David already has dozens of wives. This is King David in the Old Testament. He has dozens of wives, tons of them, right? 
And then he, he sees one day this lady named Bathsheba up on a roof and says, I want that girl right there. And so he has somebody go and bring, them, uh, bring her to him, and, uh, and he sleeps with her, and, and she gets pregnant. They're kind of figuring out what to do at that point. And so uh, what, what David does is that he takes her husband, brings him home, and tries to get her husband to immediately sleep with her so that it doesn't look like they messed around or anything. And he's a very honorable man and doesn't do that because he was supposed to be out at war. And, uh, and finally David says, fine, I'm going to put you at the front line. And so eventually David actually uh, had a hand in murdering uh, Bathsheba's husband. And then the, the prophet, Nathan, comes in to see David and tells him this story and says, uh, a man had one sheep. He had a very beloved sheep for his entire family. And there was another man who had hundreds of flocks of sheep and, and went and he stole the one sheep away from, uh, the, the, um, from the one man and said, I'm going to take your one sheep. And he took it and he uh, carved it up and ate it. And David, when Nathan came and told him this story, David freaked out and he said, who is that man? I'm going to take that man and I, he, is, he, is going to be, he is going to be punished. We're going to kill that guy because he shouldn't do that. He shouldn't take the one lamb. And Nathan says, you are the man. It was probably the biggest story of the log in someone's eye that we can see in Scripture. Where our actions don't line up with our words and our judgment is then very faulty. So I don't want to say... I don't want to stay over here where judgment is harsh. I don't want to say, stay over here where judgment is, uh, is just purposeless. But I want to be in the middle. And Jesus gives us verse 5. He says this, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He doesn't say, notice he doesn't say, you shouldn't pass judgment or you shouldn't discern. He says, your actions should be pure and you should be able to take away the log out of your own eyes so that you can keep each other accountable. There's accountability here with judgment. And that's how we live as Christians. Now, this has extreme, uh, pretty, pretty good consequences with our outreach. Why? Because lost people, they act like lost people. They do wrong things. They live poorly. So how does the judgment work into our outreach? And so Jesus is going to talk about this in verse 6. And it's a very tough verse. But number 2, there's a balance in evangelism. Balance in evangelism. Uh, verse 6, very quickly, it says, Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, how, here's the deal. Here's the question Jesus is answering. How do I share Jesus? How do I share the gospel with my neighbor who continuously rejects me? How do I share Jesus with my coworker when every time I even mention the name of Jesus, she walks away from me and doesn't even want to talk to me. In fact, won't talk to me for days when I even bring it up. How do I talk to my family member who I want to come to our church, but every time just, just completely gets frustrated to me and is now is hostile to me and doesn't want to be my friend, doesn't want to talk to me, doesn't want to, doesn't want to communicate at all because I'm a Christian and I want them to be a Christian as well. What do I do? with that. And Jesus is talking here about pearls or don't throw what is holy and sacred in front of dogs. Now dogs were wild animals back then and pigs, unclean animals. And so Jesus says, don't give it to them. Don't give what is valuable to someone who doesn't 
believe that it is valuable, right? You can throw a diamond rig at a, at a pig all day long, but they're never going to know its value because it's not food. It's not what they desire. It's not what they want. So he says, don't give it to them. Now that's tough. He's saying, essentially, don't give them the gospel. Be discerning about what you give them as far as the gospel. Now, at face value, that's a little bit disturbing. That, I mean, that, that crushes me a little bit. I'm just like, what, what's going on? Here's what Jesus means. And, and if you take a look at the whole counsel of Scripture, we can look at that and, and see that the balance, the pendulum is swinging over here, and Jesus is saying, don't give what is valuable to someone who is not going to value it. Now, at the end of this book, in chapter 28, he's going to say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, everyone, of ta-ethne, meaning everyone, every nation. So you have two verses, Jesus speaking the same thing, and we're going to find balance right in the middle when Jesus says, go therefore and make converts, or does he say disciples? What does it take to make a disciple? It takes cultivation. When you have Jesus telling the story of the person with the seed, which is the gospel, spreading it out, reaping seed, I'm sorry, sowing seed, that, and he gives pictures of different types of soil. Now, if we're doing our job as Christians, we should be cultivating relationships so that we can be giving the gospel to them. We should be watching out for the soil. There are a ton of people. I wish Ben was here today, Ben Maxson. He's one of my favorite people. And I, I love it because he was in church for months, and he was in my huddle for probably six weeks before he became a Christian. What was God doing during that time? He was cultivating Ben's heart to become a Christian. And when the gospel was given to him, it was complete brokenness and wanting of Christ. Now, if it was given to him months before him, he would have rejected it completely. But Jesus calls us to make disciples and not converts. So we shouldn't just stand out in the street corner and yell at people and tell them they're, they're going to hell. We need to be able to cultivate people and build up a platform so that we might be able to give them the gospel. Now, what do you do in the meantime? How does it work? How, how do I, what do I do in the meantime with my friends who rejected the gospel? And obviously the answer is to pray. To pray. And so Jesus moves right into this. So we have to find a balance in prayer. Number three, balance in prayer. And Jesus says this in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for, a, for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your, will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So there is a balance in prayer. Here's the balance. Here's what's interesting. It seems in that first verse, ask and it will be given to you. Now the pendulum swings a little bit. Why? Because it's just like oh, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Does that mean that Jesus is saying that there are things that you can get simply just by asking? You can have as much of it as you possibly want. The pendulum is over here. Can I have anything I want from Jesus? That seems to be what he's saying. But then we know, this is very curious, we know that the pendulum swings the other way because 
Uh, I mean, Garth Brooks had it right. I mean, right? I mean, thank God for unanswered prayers, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's things that we ask for that we don't get. So does that mean that Jesus wasn't faithful? We asked for it. Why didn't we get it? How come the pendulum swings back and forth? How does that work? And obviously there, is, there are some things, quite honestly, that Jesus gives bountifully every time that we ask without fail. The number one thing that I can think of is salvation. There is not one single time throughout all of history when someone stood and asked God to be their savior, to ask Jesus into their heart where he said, no, Uh, let me think about it for a little bit. Well, we'll do this later. No, that's an automatic thing. In James chapter two, it says, ask for wisdom and he will give it to you, right? That's an automatic ask, automatic give of a request, right? There's things like, God, I want, I want you to teach me hum, uh, humility. I want you to teach me how to love. There's not, I mean, there's not a part of God's character that's going to say, eh, we're going to wait on that one, right? It is an automatic response. Well, that's kind of frustrating to me. So there's like magic words. There's like some kind of mystery where we have to get it right, where we have to know exactly what God is going to give. And to, to some extent, there's a little bit of truth in that because what God is, what God is saying is that there's, throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount, We are striving towards godliness, the things of the kingdom, righteousness, holiness, sincerity, humility, where God is wanting us to desire these things. And we often don't ask for them. Part of the reason why our spiritual life struggles is because we never ask God for the things that he gives freely all of the time. Think about that. When was the last time in your prayer time that you said, God, I need you to teach me how to love. I, I need you to teach me a deeper form of love. I need you to teach me more about humility. These are things that God gives freely every single time. And part of the reason why we don't grow deep with God is because we don't ask for them. We never ask. And God says, I will give them freely. Now, there are other times where we ask for various things like, I, God, we need a bigger car for my family. God, I need a raise. Uh, God, I, I need a new job. Uh, God, I really need you to heal my grandmother. She's very, very sick. I, I need you to take care of my family. And there are answers to these. And God, God, the three answers to prayer are yes, no, and later. Yes, no, and later. So there is, to some extent, this kind of wanting God to do certain things that he will give freely. And then there's other things that God is going to say no to because he is a good Father, And so there is, uh, in, in our Christian lives, what we see in, in chapter 7 is, uh, chapter 7, verse 7, he has these three things. You ask, which means pray. You seek, meaning there is action in your life towards those things. And then there's knock. Knock, knock is on a door. If you knock on the right door and the correct door, the door will be open to you, right? And God, there, God is going to give, knocking on the righteousness door, walk, knocking on the humility door, there is certain forms of, uh, of prayer that just automatically happen. Now, God is showing his character here. God is going to show great character here. So what does he say in verse 9? Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, he's going to show his character. God is not a 
wandering, random person on the street who is just kind of meandering through the universe, and he's waiting for someone to kind of bully up to him and say, yo, give me your lunch money, all right? That's, that's not who God is. God is neither a tyrant. He's not a tyrant where he's kind of keeping things to himself, saying, ha, you know, I'll give it to you when I want to, and he's kind of doing it out of spite. He's not a tyrant. God is also not a indulgent grandfather that gives everything we want anytime we want it. God is a loving, heavenly father that gives bountifully, absolutely, when we need something. And he also gives when we want something sometimes, and he does it at the right time. Think about it, you parents. Think about this. If your child comes up to you and says, Mommy, I love you. I want to give you a hug. What's the answer to that question? Yes! Right? All, all the time. All the time. Yeah, absolutely. Here, give, give me a hug all the time. Right? There are things that God says absolutely all the time. Mommy, can I have a cookie? Sometimes. Yes, sure, absolutely, right? 11 o'clock at night, mommy, can I have a cookie? No. 8 o'clock in the morning, mommy, can I have a cookie? Later. God is a great heavenly father. He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly when we need it. And he is going to give those gifts at the right time, at the right place. And so there is great balance that God will do in prayer. And last one, there's a balance in relationships. Verse 12. And you guys should know this verse. If you don't have it highlighted in your Bible, go ahead and highlight it. Uh, Write it down, underline it, whatever you want to. Uh, Verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What is this? This is the golden rule, right? Do unto others what you want them to do to you. This is a great verse. Interesting fact. Jesus didn't write this. Jesus didn't come up with the golden rule. In fact, this is found decades before Jesus was even around. This little truth. In fact, this is what it originally said. This is the original writing of it. It was a Jewish proverb, and this is what it said. Whatever is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. What is, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. And that was written decades before Jesus was even, was even around. So Jesus takes it, and he finds balance. Why? Because what it, those are things, when you find something that is hateful, that is all the way over here. It's, a, it's, a, it's this part of the pendulum. When the pendulum swings all the way over here, whatever is hateful. Don't do anything to anybody else that you wouldn't want done to you. These are things of commission or sins of commission. We're going to do something to somebody else. Jesus finds balance in this by saying, Do unto others what you would want them to do to you. Do you see how he not only includes the negative, but he also includes the positive. So he swings the pendulum all the way to the other side and includes things of omission. Don't, I mean, you should, you should be doing some things to some people, even if they don't deserve it. So it's not just things of commission, it's things of omission, meaning that we should serve people. That if we want other people to be able to serve and love us, we should be the ones who serve and love other people. If if we have the ability to love and care and serve, we should. It's not just things that we shouldn't do. It's things that we should do as Christians. So Jesus kind of makes sure that there's full balance between commission and omission. And so we, church, should be the ones who not only not do things to people, 
We should be the people stepping out if we have the ability to be able to serve and to love because we have that ability. And Jesus leads the way in this. He is the only one who could save us. Now imagine if he followed the rule if the pendulum is only swaying over here. Right? He's the only one that could save us. Well, can't save themselves. They don't really deserve it. So why should I save them? Because he believes and he lives the golden rule. He's the only one that he can save, so he does. He does it on his own volition, right? He's the only one that can redeem, so he does. He's the only one that can reconcile us to God, so he does. Even when we were enemies of him, that we were the ones who were committing sin against him, he says, guess what? I'm the only one in the universe who could possibly save you, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to give up of my life so that you can have eternal life. I'm going to reconcile you to God, even though you don't deserve it, because I believe in what I teach. And I'm going to share with you absolute love and i'm going to show you how to do this that you should sacrifice yourself for others even when they don't deserve it that you should not only should you not do things to people but you should certainly serve them because they would because you would want them to serve you and likewise jesus lives this out in a beautiful way so how are you doing on your christian balancing act how what what might be, now I taught a lot about a lot of different things today. Jesus kind of hit several different things. You have judgment, evangelism, you got prayer, you got relationships with other people. Is there anywhere in there that you find yourself out of balance? Maybe it's with judgment. Maybe you are the person who is judgmental. Maybe you're the person who's all the way over here and you're like, no. No, I'm not going to say anything to anybody. I'm not going to keep my brother in line. I'm not going to speak a truth into his life. I'm, going to, I'm not going to be that caution sign to him. Well, sometimes it's going to take a caution sign of truth in somebody's life if you really love them. If that person was heading off the cliff, wouldn't you love them enough to try to stop them? That's good judgment. What about evangelism? Are we cultivating a culture to be able to make disciples? Or are we just randomly inviting people to church? Or living our own lives separately and never inviting people into our own lives and saying, I'll teach them the gospel if something springs up. How are we cultivating in our workplace, in our family, an atmosphere where we can be able to teach the gospel and give them a chance to respond? Or are we always living in a culture where it's not the appropriate time to tell them the gospel because I know that they're going to reject it? Well, sometimes it's just going to take time to cultivate that relationship. I mean, what about prayer? Are we asking? Are we asking for what God gives bountifully? Are we asking for things? Are we asking and waiting and teaching ourselves? Are we being courteous and respectful to God who does give? Are we being thankful? Are we finding balance there? And in our relationships, is there anything that we're doing to somebody else that we certainly wouldn't want them doing to us? Or is there something that we are completely omitting from serving and loving somebody that we absolutely should be doing, but we're not, and we are, we are avoiding it? Because God, Jesus, finds extreme balance in the golden rule, not just not doing something. 
it might just be something I said. It might not be everything. I don't, I don't expect it, to, you know, every area of this to be something that challenges you, but I do expect something to challenge you. The day where there's something that is out of balance in your life. What is that one thing? You might want to write it down in your notes, write it down in your Bible. What is the thing that is out of balance? And how am I going to come to an equilibrium and say, this is where I'm finding balance in my relationship with Christ? Let's pray together. Father, thankful for your word this morning, and I'm thankful that uh, you are good and you teach hard things. <laughs> you teach tough subjects, you teach tough verses. Um, because you know that we want to discern what you meant. You expect us to walk in holiness and righteousness, and you expect us to love other people. You expect us to follow you, and Father, we want to, we desire to. We want to follow who, who, who you are. We want to know who you are. We want, to, we want your spirit to be revealed to us. We want to know you not as a tyrant, Father, but as a heavenly Father who loves us dearly. Who wants to see us walk in righteousness and holiness towards you. And so, God, I pray uh, for the challenge today. That there might be something out of balance in our lives. Father, for me, I found, uh, I found a judgment within myself that was, that was judgmental, Father. And I pray that you would forgive me of that. But God, I, I pray that I would not be judgmental, Father, but I would be able to do Christian judging and discernment. That I would be able to be a giant sign of truth. Of love. And I, and I pray that, uh, that we would be that as a church to this community. That we would be able to go out and be truth and light to people's lives. We love you, Father. I'm thankful we get to worship you now. And we do proclaim your name loudly, freely. Uh, and we want to we lift you up and give you the glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.